This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis. And in this episode, we are going to be looking at Mackenzie Scott and the reimagining of philanthropy, uh, which is my rather grandiose title for taking a bit of a look at the very interesting example of what Mackenzie Scott uh, has been doing in the last year or so around her giving. Now, if you work in philanthropy, uh, as I do, you're kind of contractually obliged to have an opinion about Mackenzie Scott these days. Uh, Luckily, I have lots of opinions uh, about Mackenzie Scott, um, and I'm going to share them all with you lucky people today. Um, I guess uh, first is a bit of background for anybody who sort of you know doesn't spend all of their time thinking and, and reading about this sort of stuff on who Mackenzie Scott is and sort of why we should be paying attention in particular to her philanthropy. Um, so Mackenzie Scott is the former wife of Jeff Bezos, the, the Amazon founder. Um, they got divorced in 2019 and sort of relatively acrimonious after he was found to have been sending uh, salacious text messages to, to someone and, and being unfaithful. Um, and she received a very large um, settlement uh, as a result of that, I think an acknowledgement of the, the important role that she had played in the founding of um, Amazon because she was very hands-on certainly in the early days there she wasn't just sort of somebody who married in into that well uh, as a result of of that settlement she is in her own right now the second richest woman in the world uh, she has a net worth i believe of somewhere around uh, 62 billion dollars which is a phenomenal amount of money uh, and she's actually overall the 18th richest individual uh, in the world and the interesting thing from a philanthropy point of view has been the the notable disparity between the path that that Mackenzie Scott has taken since the divorce and that that Jeff Bezos has taken. Now, up until the point of of the divorce, they were not as a couple signatories to the the giving pledge, which is not necessarily the be-all and end-all of philanthropy, but given the circles that they moved in around Silicon Valley and the number of their contemporaries who were, it was a sort of notable thing that raised a few eyebrows and questions about why they they hadn't signed up to to that, to sort of indicate their intention to give in a very large way over over their lifetime. As soon as they got divorced, Mackenzie Scott herself, in her own right, did sign up to the giving pledge, which sort of showed Jeff Bezos up in a in a relatively big way. Then the the next thing that sort of happened was, um, I guess it was early in 2020, and I think we might have talked about it on a podcast episode. Jeff Bezos made a big announcement that he was launching a new 10 billion dollar uh, climate fund, um, sort of going big on on that element of uh, philanthropy. There was a, a lot of interest in this. You know, it was a I think the biggest gift that had ever been announced in history at that point um, although obviously subsequently the the gap between the statement of intention and the pledge to give a gift and the reality of what actually happens with that money has been particularly sort of pressing in Bezos's case when lots of people have sort of said well where is all of this money what's it doing and you know a few announcements have sort of dribbled out but it's not caused any great fanfare in contrast to that in July 2020 
Uh, Mackenzie Scott quietly posted um, a short article on Medium, sort of blog posting um, network, announcing that uh, she wasn't just planning to give, but had already given uh, $1.7 billion to a range of non-profits, around 116, 120 of them, I think, uh, focused largely on uh, issues around racial inequality, LGBTQ issues, democracy, climate change. And as we'll come on to in the podcast, you know, she was doing this in a particularly sort of interesting way. And then subsequently, more recently, in late December 2020, she put another post out on Medium saying that she donated a further $4 billion or more, I think, to around 380 organisations. Again, focusing on long-term systemic inequalities, but also um, this time sort of on addressing some of the more immediate Uh, short-term economic impacts of the pandemic and as I say this is kind of not just the amounts that she's giving but the way in which uh, Mackenzie Scott is doing her philanthropy has garnered a great you know uh, deal of column inches and also interest in the world of philanthropy and beyond and I kind of I want to frame it as you know the way in which she's doing her giving I think challenges some uh, bits of received wisdom or kind of standard operating procedure for philanthropy that's been around for a long time and potentially sort of points to, as I say in the title, a reimagining of philanthropy and, and how it can be done. So I want to explore a few of those. So in terms of this idea of kind of rejecting received wisdom, um, I'm going to pull apart various different ways in which I think Mackenzie Scott is doing that. Uh, I guess one is more to do with her wealth than her philanthropy. Um, and I find it interesting that in the way that she has framed her giving there's a very clear rejection of the sort of myth of entirely self-made wealth which is often a big part of the 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 story and mythos of of philanthropists so she said in the introduction to one of her uh, blogs she said uh, last year i pledged to give the majority of my wealth back to the society that has helped generate it to do it thoughtfully to get started soon and to keep at it until the safe is empty there's no question in my mind that anyone's personal wealth is the product of a collective effort and of social structures which present opportunities to some people and obstacles to countless others. So I think this is really interesting and it does tie into a thread that you can see in other examples of what I would call kind of relatively enlightened uh, philanthropy uh, and particularly among those who have kind of created rather than inherited wealth where you can go down two roads I think. You can either sort of believe that you've done that solely through your own genius uh, and uh, and kind of your own hard work and toil uh, and that you don't really owe anything to anyone else or you can recognize the the role that luck uh, some form of privilege uh, the contribution of others and a sort of reliance on wider society in terms of the structures that it allows um, the laws the regulatory environment the opportunities and all these sorts of things play in having allowed you to create that wealth in the first place and I think taking that latter view if people carry that over into their thinking about their philanthropy and how they're going to go about it you often see some sort of narrative that emphasizes the idea of paying back or that there's some sort of social contract um in that having been fortunate enough to create that wealth, you owe a debt to the society that's made it possible. And I think that's interesting in that it sort of positions giving as um, something on which there is some degree of requirement rather than it being entirely kind of voluntary largesse or 
what uh, philosophers back in the, the past would call uh, being supererogatory, which is kind of something that is not imposed on you as a matter of duty, but is something that is solely a, a matter of choice. And this is a thing that philosophers have kind of exercised themselves a surprising amount about when they've thought about giving. And in practical terms, I think you can see some interesting examples of this. So a, a kind of modern comparison, I think, is around uh, the philanthropy of Warren Buffett, who uh, famously said... Uh, my wealth has come from a combination of living in America, some lucky genes, and compound interest. Both my children and I won what I call the ovarian lottery. Uh, for starters, the odds against my 1930 birth taking place in the US were at least 30 to 1. My being male and white also removed huge obstacles that a majority of Americans then faced. My luck was accentuated by my living in a market system that sometimes produces distorted results, though overall it serves our country well. I've worked in an economy that rewards someone who saves the lives of others on a battlefield with a medal, rewards a great teacher with thank you notes from parents, but rewards those who can detect the mispricing of securities with sums reaching into the billions. In short, fate's distribution of long straws is wildly capricious. Uh, now you can argue about the extent to which this has been reflected in in Buffett's philanthropy, and and you know, and obviously there's a kind of inherent defence of the fundamental idea of capitalism in his statement, but as an acknowledgement of the fact that he himself has been very lucky in a number of different ways to have made the the levels of wealth that he has, I really like that statement. Looking historically, I think there are there are other wonderful examples of this. So I I love there's a quote from Julius Rosenwald, which I probably used before on the podcast because I do quote I really like this quote in reporting it it says Julius Rosenwald was always modest in his attitude towards his wealth which he considered to be the result of luck rather than evidence of any superior ability on his own part I believe he said that success is 95% luck and 5% ability I never could understand the popular belief that because a man makes a lot of money he has a lot of brains some very rich men who have made their own fortunes have been among the stupidest men I've ever met in my life there are men in America today walking the streets, financial failures who have more brains and more ability than I will ever have. I had the luck to get my opportunity. Their opportunity never came. Rich men are not smart because they get rich. They didn't get rich because they are smart. Don't ever confuse wealth with brains. They are synonyms sometimes, but non, none too often. Which again, I think is a lovely statement of the idea that we shouldn't sort of fetishize wealth creation um, as also meaning that those who have made wealth are... Uh, automatically somehow uh, privy to kind of insights and, and knowledge and expertise that the rest of us aren't. They happen to have made money and sometimes that does reflect the fact that they're particularly kind of talented uh, or driven individuals but in other cases it just represents a kind of combination of elements of, of luck and happenstance. I think the, the next uh, sort of piece of received wisdom that Mackenzie Scott's giving clearly challenges to me is, is the idea that giving money away is hard or is something that needs to take a, a long time. So I think the, people often fall back on the idea espoused by Andrew Carnegie particularly, who famously said um, something along the lines that it's harder to give money away intelligently than to earn it. So he was sort of making I think a positive case that actually philanthropy shouldn't be seen as an afterthought. It should be seen as something that you need to engage with and use at least as much of your brain um, as you, you have done in creating wealth. But I think that's been used as an as an excuse or an explanation over the years to, to sort of say why actually it was very, very difficult to give money away and which is why you have to sort of do it in a in uh, you know small portions over long periods of time. Uh, and actually the fact that Mackenzie Scott's first announcement was I've already given away $1.7 billion and then subsequently, you know, less than six months later, 
said, I've given away over another $4 billion, I think has really challenged some thinking in the philanthropy and foundation world about what is or isn't possible. And we'll come on to a bit later sort of how she has been able to do things that much more quickly and whether there are sort of questions about the compromises that that might mean in terms of overall effectiveness. But I think the the question is, does it suggest that we give too much weight to that Carnegie idea that it's hard to give money away? And actually, if you're willing to do it in a different way where you give away power and and make unrestricted grants which is uh, a big part of what Mackenzie Scott has done it's actually eminently possible I think we've touched on it uh, already but another um, way in which I think she has uh, Mackenzie Scott has challenged particularly a sort of recent paradigm around philanthropy is the idea that what you need to do is uh, is make a pledge or a kind of big announcement about your intentions. And obviously she did this in, in terms of signing the giving pledge, but there are many, many people on the giving pledge, as we have talked about in a particular episode of the podcast on Pledge Philanthropy, who have made very big announcements and then there is precious little evidence of what they have subsequently done. And obviously they've got plenty of time before they die, one would think, but equally they don't rush uh, particularly to sort of put into action their plans. Whereas she very much, you know, the next big announcement she made was not about her intention to give some future sum towards charity at a suitable later date. It was, I have already done this, here is the money that I've given. And I think that was seen um, as a kind of implicit, I guess, um, if not explicit, challenge, particularly to the paradigm uh, in the, the sort of tech philanthropy world, where the model is that you come out with a big announcement about, you know, your grandiose ambitions, and then hope that everybody doesn't ask too much, too many questions about, you know, precisely how you're going to do it and the structures you're going to use. Um, so I think it's interesting the challenge that she's she's posed in that way. Another challenge that she's posed, I think, to a very sort of long-standing piece of received wisdom, or at least one strong trend in philanthropy, um, is the idea that philanthropy has to be very long-term uh, or even perpetual. Um, we've already sort of talked about the the fact that she's done a lot of her giving very quickly, but also, as far as I'm aware, in terms of the vehicle she's using, there's no suggestion that she's trying to sort of endow uh, a structure that will live on in perpetuity. And obviously, there've been historic uh, challenges to this idea and the idea of the the dead hand of the donor over hundreds and hundreds of years, as we've talked about on on the podcast. But actually, you know, Scott is just getting money out the door to the needs of the moment right now at a phenomenal and and accelerating rate so you know it certainly seems like she's saying whether or not she's engaging specifically with that debate saying actually no this is how I'm going to do it and and by doing that is sort of demonstrating uh, that actually responding to uh, immediate present needs uh, is possible at that kind of scale and then the final thing I want to say in this section I guess touches on one of the things that people have kind of highlighted most uh, about Mackenzie Scott's giving which is that she is very much challenging the idea that philanthropic funding and grants need to be restricted programmatic and short term um so the the way in which she is funding is very much based on identifying the organizations that she wants to fund and we'll talk a bit more um later on about how that is done and some sort of questions about that but when she is um she's just giving them money that they can spend in whatever way they want so kind of empowering and trusting the people who are the leaders of that organization and this you know ties into something that we've seen and talked about on the podcast through the pandemic uh, as a broader trend which is that there's been more of a shift towards this kind of unrestricted trust-based um, 
uh, funder-grantee relationship, partly as a, as a sort of pragmatic response to the, the needs um, and requirements of, of the pandemic, but also a, a sense within the philanthropy world that it might herald a kind of longer-term shift. And I think Mackenzie Scott really adds weight to that argument by demonstrating that you can do things in that way. I think, you know, there are questions about whether everyone can do things in that way and whether it's appropriate um, for achieving all goals, which we'll talk about a bit later. But I think it's certainly a very powerful model. Uh, And I think particularly around the sorts of causes that she is interested in, you know, kind of justice and rights-based causes and those that address inequality, this kind of core funding is something that's absolutely um, vital. Um, you know, most movements would would say that's the thing that they struggle to get most, but it's the thing that has most value. Um, I just want to read here's a really interesting quote from a chapter by Robert Bothwell um, in a book by um, edited volume by Faber and McCarthy on philanthropy and social movements. Um, but it says in that core support can be revolutionary. Perhaps that's why core funding is much more often granted to institutions of higher educational arts and culture, which are not likely to do anything revolutionary, than to grassroots organisations in low-income neighbourhoods, activist immigrant groups, or organisations of the disabled and marginalised racial ethnic groups, which might. One explanation for the correlation between core funding and certain institutions is class affinity. Staff and board leaders of arts and higher education organisations are fundamentally of the same class as the donors, whereas leaders of many grassroots groups are distinctly not. The donor brain thinks, we can trust Yale University and the Metropolitan Opera to do, quotes, the right thing. I think this raises some really interesting questions about, um, actually, as you say, overcoming uh, some of the inherent biases that donors might have that are then reflected in their choice of institutions and their attitudes towards the perceived risk of funding different types of groups and in deliberately choosing to identify organisations that are very largely led by people from the communities that she is sort of most interested in in serving through her philanthropy, Mackenzie Scott seems to be trying to kind of overcome some of that. So um, I think, you know, that's a particularly powerful and fascinating aspect of, of what she's doing. Um, OK, we'll take a short break there. And then when we come back, I want to think a bit more about uh, the other ways in, in which Mackenzie Scott is challenging some of our received wisdom about philanthropy so stay tuned for that okay so we're back and yeah in this section i want to pick up on some of what you were saying just at the end of the last section and look at the way in which mackenzie scott's philanthropy is challenging another idea which is the idea that the donor has all the answers um, or should have the power over sort of dictating what those answers might be I think here Scott is really kind of abandoning something that is that is the kind of main current paradigm and actually sort of arguing that for her the most rational or effective thing and we'll talk in a moment about kind of what rationality and effectiveness might mean is to give money with as few strings as possible to those who might actually know how to address problems so again she wrote in one of her medium posts I began work to complete my pledge with the belief that my life had yielded two assets that could be of particular value to others the money these systems helped deliver to me and a conviction that people who have experience with inequities are the ones best equipped to design solutions. So very much from the outset saying she is not pretending to have all the answers to the problems that she wants to solve, which I think, again, 
is a, an appealing element of sort of putting aside the the desire of the the donor to be seen as the kind of lone savior or have a sort of you know there's an ego element to i am so brilliant uh in having made this much money that i also must have the uh the answers to all of society's kind of deep-seated social problems if only i can find the time to to put my gigantic brain towards them and i think she's sort of doing away with with that kind of model and there's a, an interesting bit here i'm just going to read from an article on vox which has obviously been uh, writes quite a lot on philanthropy and has been tracking uh, Mackenzie scott's uh, giving it says that fact might provide a useful lens for evaluating her donations Mackenzie scott does not know how to solve racial justice women's rights or LB- lgbtq plus equality she just happens to unlike most of us be in possession of 35 billion dollars and so she decided that if she gave much of that money to black activists and lgbtq plus activists and women's activists probably they would be better suited than she is to figure out how the money could be spent to solve those problems so i think that's really interesting i think it's important to say you know it's very clear from what Mackenzie scott has written that it's not that she's not being rigorous at all um there's a lot of due diligence going on um, and she has put together a sort of group of advisors who are helping her to identify cause areas and organizations um, and uh, to do a lot of sort of data-driven work I think to understand which of those are good organizations that are going to deliver good outcomes and I think again there are sort of questions around the role of those advisors and who they are and and how they're making those decisions but it's clear that you know she's not saying oh I'm just going to you know pick some names out of a hat and give them lots of money there is a lot of work going on. I think that one of the really interesting things I noticed in rereading was um, a passage in which she was also explicitly making the point that it was appropriate for donors to take on and funders to take on the responsibility of doing that due diligence and that work ahead of time so that they could then make unrestricted grants to to recipient organizations and take the burden off them around fundraising and reporting because precisely that it's sort of they were too much of their time was being taken up in some of those other activities so she says we do this research and deeper diligence not only to identify organizations with high potential for impact but also to pave the way for unsolicited and unexpected gifts given with full trust and no strings attached because our research is data-driven and rigorous, our giving process can be human and soft. Not only are non-profits chronically underfunded, they are also chronically diverted from their work by fundraising and by burdensome reporting requirements that donors often place on them. And I think this is really interesting. It's like, in one sense, I think it's very empowering. And I think this this question about you know the human element of giving will come on to again in a minute. But there's also a sense, I guess, in which you could argue it's slightly paternalistic in that do all organizations necessarily want the ability to fundraise and to actively own the the process of kind of engaging with donors taken away from them and and the ability to sort of tell their story and it obviously puts a lot of emphasis on data about those organizations that they might have little control over or ability to to sort of shape if they don't know that a donor is even out there thinking about whether or not to make um these donations to them i think it also is important to say with um regard to to the idea of where the power sits i think there's clearly an element of mackenzie scott shifting power uh, in terms of how money is spent by the recipient organizations by making unrestricted grants to them but actually the selection of cause areas that she's focusing on and who the recipient organizations are is still very much in the hands of scott and, and her advisors and i think when you look at the 
historic interaction, particularly of, of philanthropy and social movements, that still leaves open some of the potentially problematic areas about the selection of causes, but also the selection of organisations within them. So again, there's a quote from a, another chapter in the Faber and McCarthy book saying, you know, when foundations do fund social movements, they often encourage and support the, mo- the more politically centrist organisations and campaigns within movements. Larger foundations have a greater capacity to disembody and conventional a movement i guess the point here is that if if they are making data driven um uh, decisions about which organizations to give to that are effective within a in a certain area i think without more transparency perhaps about what the criteria are they're employing there's still a concern potentially that they are skewing funding towards organizations that are seen as safer in some sense rather than kind of pushing at the the boundaries of areas that are are more contentious and it's perfectly valid to make that choice it's just that if you do when you have the levels of wealth that Mackenzie Scott has at her disposal I think there is um, a a kind of an onus on you to be fully transparent about uh, the fact that that is what you are doing and to acknowledge that you may play a role in sort of dis- uh, distorting the market overall even if that's not your intention. The, the next thing I want to come on to which links very clearly to that um, is something I think is particularly fascinating in the wider context of the history of philanthropy and where we've got to in philanthropy. And this will probably link to the podcast conversation that we had with Paul Vallely about his book from Aristotle to Zuckerberg and particularly his sort of idea about rebalancing the reciprocal sort of human element of philanthropy and the kind of um, technocratic top-down elements of, of philanthropy. And I think this is a challenge that Mackenzie Scott's giving poses to our understanding of what it means to be strategic or effective when it comes to philanthropy. And so the background to this is, you know, this the idea of wanting to make philanthropy more effective and, and rational in some sense is not a new thing. It's something we talked about on the, the podcast, and I'm sure I can put links in the show notes too. But I think the question about the that always comes to my mind is what do you actually mean by that? And what do we mean by rationality or effectiveness? I think they're often presented by people who are in favour of them as if they're neutral or objective concepts but actually they presuppose a lot of theoretical framework and kind of ideological baggage you know effective at doing what rational by whose assessment so when we're aiming for rationality or effectiveness in in philanthropy it means that we've got to basically have an explanation for why the approach that you're taking and the steps that you're implementing carries a reasonable expectation of delivering a particular goal you know and that then implies that you have a view on what that intended goal is but you know one of the things you notice from looking at the history of philanthropy is even where people have agreed on the fact that it would be good to make giving more rational and effective in some sense people have tended to disagree on what the actual desirable goal of giving is they've tended to disagree on the best way of achieving that goal and also views on both of those issues have tended to shift quite markedly over time so you know for instance you look at um the uh, the 18th century the sort of late 18th century there you see their efforts to make philanthropy more rational that were sort of tied in with enlightenment thinking what was going on around the 
political thinking around the French Revolution. And a lot of that focused on notions of political economy, and often some of that was tied in with espousing kind of utilitarian uh, views, and often this sort of pushed towards the idea of greater state responsibility being taken and away from, from voluntary action. If you, you shift further on into the Victorian era, there's uh, the whole charity organisation society movement and, and later the kind of scientific philanthropy movement in, in the US. You know, that sought on paper to rationalise philanthropy or to make it more effective in some sense by applying what they would call a scientific approach. Though actually, you know, when you look at the detail of it, it was there was a much more ideology and kind of moralising in it because it was a lot of it was about judgments about what was good or bad philanthropy depending on your view of deserving and undeserving cases of poverty and and a lot of it was about sort of um, campaigning against what was perceived as indiscriminate giving and then into the 20th century I think there's you know other models of of making giving more rational and effective for instance the you know the idea that the way to do that would be to make the structures and approaches that we use for giving mirror those of the, the corporate sphere and the commercial sphere more closely began to emerge and the whole idea of making philanthropy more business-like which has proven you know stubbornly hard to shift unfortunately i think in many ways um, and then more recently i think there's you know uh, signs of other strands of thinking that still kind of broadly want to do the same thing in terms of making this maddening thing that we call philanthropy and voluntary action more uh, rational and effective so effective altruism i mean the clue is in the name um, we talked, you know, in an episode of the podcast before about that, but that's essentially an approach to giving based on a modern version of utilitarian philosophy that tries to take the element of, uh, of donor centricity out of giving and make a, a kind of objective assessment of where money can be deployed to achieve the, the maximum good in a, in a sort of defined sense. You know, and uh, this, uh, we've talked about why people do or don't like effective altruism, um, and it represents perhaps just sort of one view of what philanthropy should be, but it's clearly an attempt to kind of make it more rational in some sense. And I think linking into that and perhaps explaining some of the popularity of effective altruism i think it ties into a view that comes out of the world of technology where a lot of big philanthropy uh, is coming from these days where the idea of rationality is defined by the ability to apply big data and sort of you know automation um to to em- to sort of find evidence for interventions in in that way i think the other angle that i would sort of bring in here which i think is interesting historically but also relates to mackenzie scott and will bring us on to to some of the her, the other things that she said i think a lot of this this um argument in favor of rationality tends to have been framed historically as about the battle between head and heart in giving so it's like do we think more with the head about what we are trying to achieve through our giving or do we sort of think with the heart in terms of the emotional human content of why we're giving and and the sort of personal connection and this has also interestingly been framed as a difference between masculine and feminine approaches to giving so the social reformer josephine butler for instance um very interestingly to me, said, uh, we have had experience of what we may call the feminine form of philanthropy, uh, an independent individual ministering, of too medieval a type to suit the present day. It has failed. We are now about to try the masculine form of philanthropy, large and comprehensive measures, organisations and systems planned by men and sanctioned by Parliament. 
This will also fail if it so far prevail as to extinguish the truth to which the other method witnessed in spite of its excesses. Why should we not try at last a union of principles which are equally true? Which I think is a very forward-looking statement that speaks to a lot of what's going on in philanthropy today, which is actually about how do you combine the benefits of that sort of evidence-driven, more rational approach to philanthropy with the kind of inescapable core that it is about people and human connections and that if you go too far away from those you lose something pretty um pretty fundamental and i think just on this question of effectiveness one it was interesting to me reading one of the articles in vox about um about mckenzie scott's philanthropy uh, i think it was some sort of light criticism there along the lines of saying well you know it's fine that she's doing this and giving all this money uh, in an unrestricted way to all these organizations but you know mo- most charitable interventions i think it said are provably ineffective and this particular bit of vox i think takes quite a sort of strong uh, has a strong affinity with effective altruism so i think it was a critique very much from that point of view but i guess this goes to the fundamental point of you know it depends what you're actually measuring and on what you're trying to achieve so in terms of Mackenzie Scott giving, if we're trying to assess whether or not it is effective, is she trying to achieve the same thing that an effective altruist would do, would be trying to achieve through those gifts? And if not, is it appropriate to sort of uh, try and measure her effectiveness by those those same criteria? Actually, if, as I suspect, you know, a large part of the aim for her is is the empowerment of the organisations she's given grants to, and by extension, you know, the communities that are a part of, then is she already sort of successful simply in having given that money, and then actually the kind of longer term outcomes that they uh, they they um, produce are not that they're not important, but they're not the whole picture, and that these sort of different elements have to be balanced against one another. I don't know, and it raises a question about you know to what extent you're able to capture those different elements of the value of giving and whether you're trying to and and whether that needs to be communicated so that you're assessed properly or the effectiveness of your philanthropy is assessed properly. And then this goes, I think, to something else that, that's linked to that, which is you know, I think Mackenzie Scott's giving and the way in which she presents it is interesting in that it's kind of deliberately challenging the idea that quote-unquote philanthropy is inherently better than quote-unquote charity and she doesn't necessarily draw it in in these terms but she does talk a lot about the importance of human connection in gift giving um, and on and also sort of about the the spiritual benefits of the donor of the gift um, in you know as much as it is of financial benefit to the to the recipient um, and again this goes back very much to the conversation I had uh, last year with Paul Vallely. Um but she she wrote again in one of her blogs you know we shared each of our gift decisions with program leaders for the first time over the phone and welcomed them to spend the funding on whatever they believe best serves their efforts they were told that the entire commitment would be, would be paid up front and left unrestricted in order to provide them with maximum flexibility. The responses from people who took the calls often included personal stories and tears. These were non-profit veterans from all backgrounds and backstories talking to us from cars and cabins and COVID-packed houses all over the country. A retired army general, the president of a tribal college recalling her first teaching job on her reservation, a loan fund founder sitting in the makeshift workspace between her washer and dryer from which she'd launched her initiative years ago. Their stories and tears invariably made me and my teammates cry. And I think this is really interesting because it's 
in a way, I think, you, I don't know whether it is gendered, and I sort of hesitate to put this forward as, as an idea, but it strikes me that a lot of the, the kind of more macho, particularly sort of tech bro philanthropists, would not be coming out with a narrative that focuses on these sorts of elements or sort of acknowledges that actually this was part of the, the act or process of giving. And I think Mackenzie Scott, um, whether it is, you know, uh, to do with her gender or whether it's more to do with her background and the fact that she is a sort of poet and author and therefore, I guess, kind of more comfortable talking about these these notions of sort of human connectedness is presenting her giving which ha, you know is done rigorously and and sort of at very large scales and has all that sort of institutional machinery but is fundamentally talking about the importance of human connection and human relationships and doing so unapologetically and i think that is really interesting particularly when you look in the sort of historical context of the distinction between philanthropy and charity often being drawn as as one where you are talking disparagingly about you know mere giving which is about people giving to people and it being sort of driven by emotion and human connection and actually there being this sort of olympian ad- ideal of philanthropy that is cold and dispassionate and and rigorous and and you know done at a distance uh, and i think by kind of reconnecting the idea that even philanthropy at the scale she's doing it has to have that element of human connection i think she's doing something very interesting okay we'll take another short break there and then We'll be back for the final section of the podcast in which we'll look at a couple more ways in which uh, Mackenzie Scott is interestingly challenging received wisdom and also a few questions that we may want to ask uh, about her giving. So stay tuned for that. Okay, so we're back uh, for this final section. And I just want to touch on a couple of other ways in which Mackenzie Scott's giving is sort of challenging uh, received wisdom. And also these ways, I think, which lead on to some questions that we might want to ask or sort of, you know, slightly more kind of critical views we might want to take on what she's doing. I guess the the first is, you know, she is to some extent, I suppose, challenging the idea that philanthropy is actually a solution to to inequality. She is uh, talking explicitly in what she's done about the the problematic fact that during this pandemic when inequality and economic inequality has worsened, actually billionaires have become richer at a greater rate than than ever before and she sort of draws attention to this. And this touches on, you know, one of the critiques that we've seen of of Scott's philanthropy so far, which is people saying, "Well, it's great in and of itself that she's giving up money and I'm not particularly you know have a problem with the way in which she's doing it the problem is that actually what the story shows is that it's hugely problematic that anyone could have that level of wealth in the first place so it's not so much a case of sort of celebrating a philanthropy as lamenting the fact that we have the kind of economic inequality that can make it possible for somebody to be a billionaire on that sort of scale and what it shows is the need for more taxation on on those at those levels of wealth um, rather than the need for doing philanthropy to be better and i think you know scott seems as though she would probably accept a lot of those critiques to to a greater or lesser extent and is doing her giving in that context or at least kind of acknowledging it far more than than lots of other um donors are i guess it, it does speak to some sort of longer standing critiques of philanthropy which again we've talked about on the podcast and then goes to the work of of critics like and Girida Radas um, that essentially you know philanthropy can never really be used as a tool to address inequality in its most fundamental way because it's actually a symptom of, of that inequality in the first place so it's this idea you can't you know use the master's tools to, to dismantle the master's house uh, that Audre Lorde was talking about and I guess in terms of Scott's philanthropy you can level that critique in the sense that um, she's she's focusing on wealth inequality and doing a lot of work and it's 
done in a very empowering way. She's still not fundamentally um, giving to things like uh, kind of labour causes or, or or union organising, which some people I think would like to her uh, to her to be doing because i think that would carry a more explicit acknowledgement and critique of the way in which her wealth had been created because again we have to remember that she she's not just a passive recipient of, of bezos's wealth you know as you as you read if you read profiles of her she was very heavily involved in the creation of amazon in the early days and although she was much less hands-on in the sort of latter stages as it ballooned into this global behemoth you know she she that is where her wealth comes from and so to that extent she is very much complicit sit in that even if she wasn't driving the sort of policies and approaches that that Amazon took but when it comes to her giving it is therefore fair to ask questions about the extent to which the problematic nature of some of that wealth and the fact that Amazon there are big questions about you know its approach to paying taxes its approach to you know treating its employees fairly its approach to uh, unions and labor organizing whether that actually is so problematic that it kind of undermines the legitimacy of Mackenzie Scott's um, efforts to do good through giving the money away or whether she should be acknowledging those problems more explicitly and kind of giving uh, to causes that directly address those kinds of challenges. So I think there are kind of questions there about whether, you know, some critics would sort of say, actually, if she genuinely wants to acknowledge those challenges around inequality, it sort of it suggests that you need to be thinking about focusing, you know, in, in, in an even more kind of fundamental way on addressing uh, some of those those issues, and particularly the ones that relate to criticisms of, uh, of Amazon. And then the, the final... Um, um, way in which I think Mackenzie Scott's giving uh, is is posing an interesting challenge, and this ties into a sort of broader trend that we've seen elsewhere recently, is around the the idea that philanthropy needs to be secretive. So you know she is uh, to to some extent doing her philanthropy in a very open way. You know she's been explicit about who all of the grantees are, uh, you know publishing lists of them, encouraging people to go out and support them themselves as well if they they want to. And this is you know interestingly similar to another example we've seen coming out of the tech world which is the uh, the giving that Jack Dorsey the Twitter founder has been doing which is you know similarly I guess unstrategic if you want to call it that in that he again has been basically kept a Google doc I think of organizations that he was funding and you know the exact amounts and being sort of a kind of radically transparent form of philanthropy where he was telling everybody exactly what he was giving to and why and I guess then they could be tracked I think there was less of a sense in his case that there was a kind of clear narrative behind it but he still was you know uh, supporting some great grassroots uh, organizations and initiatives uh, and I think you know in terms of the the paradigm of philanthropy where donors feel as though they need to uh, do things in a sort of highly secretive way and and you know keep all of that to, to themselves I guess Mackenzie Scott's giving poses an interesting challenge but then I on the flip side, I think it also points to the fact there are some important questions still to be answered about her giving um, if if we want to, to sort of fully realise that, that openness and transparency. One of those questions is around who this network of advisors are that are um, supporting her in kind of identifying uh, organisations and, and doing the due diligence required to, to make those unrestricted grants. I guess it's understandable if she wants to keep those people anonymous to avoid them getting bombarded with fundraising asks, which they might well do. But but I guess also, given the level of power they have and the amounts of money involved, you know, do people have a right to demand more openness um, around who they 
those people are and, and the decision making processes that they're using. I think the other way and the other place in which we probably need a little bit more transparency ideally is around the exact vehicle that is being used for some of this giving. I mean that might seem like a sort of technical, you know, nerd thing and it, to some extent it is. But actually there, you know, there are quite big differences in whether she's using a traditional non-profit structure like a foundation, whether she's using, you know, any uh, sort of combination of donor advised funds, which she doesn't seem to be doing, but we, you know, it's possible that would be some element of it in the future, or whether she's employing a limited liability corporation, an LLC, because there are very different reporting requirements and levels of transparency associated with those different vehicles. And I guess that brings us on to to the sort of the final uh, few thoughts here, which are really around, you know, what are the questions we should be asking about Mackenzie Scott's giving, which is absolutely not to suddenly say, right, let's just be really cynical and, and uh, uh, kind of dismissive or negative about it. I have, you know, been very much using it as an example of a hugely positive approach to philanthropy and pointing to many ways in which I think philanthropy could change for the better, as have lots of other people recently. But equally, I don't think we should get so sort of blinded by that that we don't ask some of those kind of important questions as we continue to go along. We've talked about most of them in the course of this episode already. I think asking that question of the exact link between the nature of how her wealth was created and and the sort of critiques of Amazon and the legitimacy that she has in, in giving it away and whether there is sort of more of an onus to connect those two things in terms of the sorts of cause areas that she's focusing on. You know, should she be doing more to address, uh, you know, inequality by pushing for things like wealth taxes, which, you know, some philanthropists are starting to do this. The whole, there's an organization called Patriotic Millionaires in the US, which is a you know, as the name would suggest, a group of millionaires um, who actually are kind of have a lobbying organisation where they're pushing for people like them to get taxed more, which is you know very much the sort of using the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. One would one might argue. I think those questions around the transparency of how the grantees are being identified and by whom and and using sort of what processes, I think, are important. As are the questions around the vehicle that she's using for a giving. Um, you know, as as time goes on. Then I guess there's, you know, the the question of effectiveness. I think even if, as I was arguing, maybe we need to rethink what it actually is that we mean by effectiveness and how we assess that, this, I still don't think that we can sort of say, oh, actually, it's just I've got a different definition of effectiveness. And so, you know, you can't question what I'm doing. I think it's still fair to say in a more kind of straightforwardly old-fashioned way, are the grants that she's giving actually producing any kind of meaningful uh, results? Um, and you know, and to hold that giving to account on on that basis, and if they're not, even if she is empowering the organisations through making those kind of unrestricted grants, are there other organisations or sort of different ways of doing things that bring? that benefit but also sort of achieve better outcomes overall and then i guess the final question is what does this mean for the rest of philanthropy you know is this how all philanthropy should be done in future i mean can all philanthropy be done in this way and should it in terms of these elements of sort of received wisdom that i'm arguing that she's rejected are these things that other donors and funders should take on board and in and in what ways um i mean I'd, i wouldn't necessarily want to be as normative as saying oh she set a template for anyone and everyone else who is planning on giving very large amounts of money because i think there are sort of justifiable arguments why you might want to take a different approach in in different contexts 
contexts. But I think it's it set a new benchmark against which future announcements of sort of big money individual philanthropy particularly will and I would argue should be judged to say actually you know why have you chosen to do it differently from the way that that she is doing it and to be explicit about you know what the arguments are in in favor of doing it in those different ways so I think you know I'll continue to watch this space and I think what she's doing is is absolutely fascinating um you know as I'm sure all people who are kind of count themselves as philanthropy watchers would probably agree okay well that brings us to the end of the podcast um as ever I will put uh, links to uh, lots of things I've talked about there in the show notes if you're interested more broadly in issues around philanthropy and civil society uh, do check out the giving thought pages at the CAF website uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis or at uh, Philiteracy if you want stuff that's more about kind of history uh, and interesting writings about philanthropy from other people. If you've got ideas for things we could talk about on the podcast or people I could interview, uh, drop us a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Other than that, the usual like, subscribe, tell all your friends about it, leave us a nice review uh, on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcast these days, and I will see you next time. Bye! Bye!